Oh my god, your face right now. I'm so glad you can attentively listen to me as I share about Marjorie Cameron. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching YouTube. He's he's having a stroke. (laughs) That sarcophagus was having a stroke. (laughs) Check it out on YouTube, guys. Link in show notes. Oh my god. Uh, all right, where were we? Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're looking at both an artist and a scientist who are delving into other worlds. It's a scary Halloween episode, baby. Ooh, and not just the sexism this time. Oh, no. I mean, there's definitely sexism. Oh, there always is. That's why we do this. You know. Today, we're going to talk about some very scary things. The first scary thing is me trying to explain astrophysics without losing people. You know what? I believe in you. I do. (laughs) It's going to be real easy, I promise. We've got this. The second scary thing is, again, sexism in the science community. And the arts. It's always there. And really everywhere. I feel like the first episode where we can proudly say there was no sexism involved in the making of the show, um, we're done. We've done our jobs. But until that day, we're going to keep going. We're here. And the final scary thing, Megan, is the existence of dark matter in the universe. I love you so much. (laughs) Why? Why? I just... Okay, I think I'm ready for this. You think you're ready. It just sounds like a lot of science. And I, like, skimmed on my science classes in high school, so that way I could take more art classes, so... I'm going to put training wheels on everybody today. Do I get streamers on my handlebars, too? You get streamers on your handlebars, Megan. I gotcha. Okay, what about what about a little bell? And a bell. Whenever you get really confused, you can just ring it. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Sounds good. It's like the opposite of Jeopardy. The opposite of Jeopardy. What is... Like, I do not know what you just said. <laughs> what is... I am very confused right now. Uh, yes, Alec, I'll take that for a thousand. Oh, look. Daily double. <laughs> So we'll get to dark matter in a hot minute, but first we need to talk about the woman who brought dark matter to our attention. Her name was Vera Rubin. She was an American astronomer. She was born Vera Florence Cooper, July 23rd, 1928, in Philadelphia. Uh, She was born to two Jewish immigrants, Philip Cooper and Rose Applebaum Cooper. So dad was an electrical engineer and mom stayed at home to take care of everything. She had an older sister named Ruth. And not only do we know her name, but I also know what she was. That like never happens. I know. She was an administrative law judge in the United States Department of Defense. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty badass. They're both... Kicking button taking names. So age 10, they moved from Philadelphia to D.C. There she would watch the stars from her window and would start to develop an interest in astronomy. So much so that she built a telescope out of cardboard with her father. And she was, like, tracking meteors and stuff like that at the age of 10. That's so cool. Yeah, she was really into it. She was feeling it. And awesome father-daughter bonding time, which I'm totally 100% for. What were you and your dad up to when you guys, when you were 10? 
When I was 10, so I tried to show interest in the things he was interested in, and that involved me going to a golf course with him. Okay, yeah, that was going to be in my top three list. (laughs) I was about to say, for a 10-year-old, I feel like golfing, um, Harley Davidson, and then (laughs) nuclear physics don't typically rank very high on a 10-year-old's interests. But here's the deal. Uh, he was always learning and growing and doing, like, um, like continuing education and, like, conferences and stuff when I was 10. So mm-hmm. he was – we. this was when we lived in Japan. So he would, like, jump to, like, Korea for a little bit and then come back. Whenever he was making PowerPoints, he would, like, tell me about it and I kind of osmosised nuclear radiation <laughs> – through through the PowerPoints he was making nice. when I would go bother him. Nice. Uh, and then he actually didn't start really riding motorcycles until we lived in Maryland, so when I was 14. And the golf, he was into it for a while. That was, like, his big thing to do with his friends. And he took me once, and I got attacked by a giant Japanese crow. <gasps> That's right. They stole your goddamn french fries. They stole my goddamn french fries. I was just... Sitting on the golf course, hanging out with my dad, you know, talking to him. We had a great time. We went, you know, to get lunch off the course. You know what you do mm-hmm. when you go to a golf course. And I ordered a, a turkey club, a turkey bacon. Or was it? No, it was a BLT club with fries because that was my shit. I ate the BLT, but I wanted to keep the fries. So we go back onto the golf course and I like go next to him to say hi. And then I hear like this screech from hell and I turn back to the golf cart and there are my beloved fries being ripped apart and shared by two giant ass Japanese crows who if you're not sure what they look like their wingspans are basically the size of a 10 year old's arm span. So a little intimidating. A little. Alright well that sounds like some lovely father daughter bonding time on the golf course's on military bases in Japan, minus the aggressive crows. It was a weird childhood, guys. Just throwing that out there. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, but <laughs> yeah. All right. So meanwhile, your scientist, she's 10. They're making cardboard telescopes, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't know where they got that kit. Like, do you have a lens at the end you put in? But that's pretty cool. She got that support from her father and her family. Yeah. She had, like, you know, some bonding time. And then... She graduated high school in 1944 with a very strong interest in science, specifically astronomy. She moved on to Vassar College, a then all-woman school, because most other schools wouldn't take her. There's that sexism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In high school, she was told to become an artist because she was a woman, because women shouldn't be scientists, right? Yeah. Well, historically, they haven't fared too well as artists either. Right. Now... As the artist's muse, however. <laughs> tits! <laughs> All of the tits! Y- yeah, yeah, not gonna lie. So instead of going into the arts, she actually was the only individual who graduated with a bachelor's degree in astronomy in 1948. So there's that. I mean, <laughs> talk about a good one-to-one ratio between students and professors within that program. I know. She's just had... Although, like, when she was there, she there was one time where she tried to, like, meet with her advisor, and she wasn't allowed to meet her advisor because women were not allowed in that part of the college, I guess. 
That doesn't surprise me. So she wanted to go on to grad school, and Princeton turned her down because, once again, she was a woman, and women. Or Princeton didn't take women for their programs, so that was obnoxious. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she turned down Harvard because her husband, Robert, who she married in 1948, got a position as a grad student in Cornell. And there, she would also enroll in a graduate program herself. So Star Stuff 101, for those who have no idea what's going on, Megan... Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. The universe is an ever-expanding, ever-moving thing. There is no end to it. It holds galaxies. They consist of planets, stars, suns, etc., etc. There are an estimated 100 billion galaxies that we know of so far. So each galaxy also moves, also expands, and it definitely rotates. I love how some people are like, no, guys, really, we are the only intelligent life forms in the entirety of everything. No, <laughs> definitely talk about, not. Talk about us being cocky bastards. I know. Like, no, guys, we're we're it. A hundred billion galaxies, but this is it. Bullshit. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Okay. Um. So basically, we are insignificant specks of dust. You got that, Megan? Oh, I got it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Helps me get through the day. <laughs> that and the fact that uh, death comes to all. Every day I like to wake up and realize my immortality and insignificance in the grand scheme of the universe keeps me in check. You know. I make good art because of it. <laughs> yeah. It's the little things in life. Little things. Um, so Rubin there studied physics under Philip Morrison, Richard Feynman, and Hans Beth. All names you have no idea. The, the, one, the one big one is Richard Feynman. He was a theoretical physicist. Known for like quantum mechanics. That just seems to me like someone who is incredibly indecisive when you ask them, "What? Where would you like to go for dinner? <laughs> Wait. Should we get red wine or white wine? Do you want to order an appetizer? It's a theoretical physicist and string theory. It's just so many options, so many infinite possibilities. Oh. <laughs> I feel like I could be someone be like, just tell me for the love of God, where do you want to eat? <laughs> Pick a restaurant. What do you Any want? Any restaurant. <laughs> That's funny. (laughs) We all have our moments. So Ruben, she completed her studies in 1951. Um, Basically, there's a law, Big Bang Theory. It started in one point in space. And since then, the galaxies and the entirety of space has banged outward and extended outward from that one spot. Okay, I'm on board. She instead argued that galaxies might be... Going all over the place, not just from one spot, but just random, random rotations, essentially. Okay. This presentation was not well received. People were like, no. Oh, so it was it was pretty much counter to the current line of thinking yeah. at that time? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So instead of it being one projection from one spot, it was like, nah, the universe just expands in all sorts of directions. Okay, we're getting a little loosey-goosey here. I could see where that might bother some some people. Yeah, they were they were not having it. But she still graduated in 1951, and then she went to Georgetown for her PhD. Yeah, get it. I know. And there she was like, galaxies clumped together. And people were like, maybe? But nobody really, like, pursued that theory seriously until two decades later. I mean, that's cool she was pursuing that but also kind of sucks when it takes like a few decades for everyone else to catch up to your line of thinking i know she i'm sure like a couple decades later she was like really really guys okay now i want to tell you guys about fill in the blank yeah like whoa 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 (laughs) way to catch up all right now here we're gonna keep going 
<laughs> like, Give me 30 years. Oh, my God. We'll come back and talk to you. <laughs> she then went on to teach at Montgomery County Junior College. And then she worked at Georgetown as a research assistant and a adjunct professor. So there, she was actually, in 1965, like 10 years later, she was actually the first woman allowed to use the Palomar Observatory, which, that's, again, 1965. Only one woman has used it. Now it's just this giant telescope that allowed, like, her to get closer and to see farther into the galaxies and into space. It's enormous. It's, like, multiple stories tall. It's crazy. I mean, it sucks, but it makes sense because there are just so many barriers for women for furthering themselves, especially in education and especially in areas traditionally, you know, male dominated Mm -hmm. that it's it's sad. But we've seen it happen way too much. I imagine she just like said, fuck it and walked in. If anything, I want to hear about the women who technically weren't allowed to use it. Who did? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, That year, she also secured a position at the Department of the Terrestrial Magnetism at the Carnegie Institute of Washington, Uh, and then later she became a senior fellow there. She also began work relating to galaxy clusters with a guy named Kent Ford. They used Ford's image tubing spectrograph, so it basically allowed Rubin and Ford to turn up the light on the observation field through the instrument to get a better look at previously dimmed galaxies. So it just made it easier to see these galaxies... They just turned up the light, basically, and they were recording hundreds of observations based off of it. So there, the Rubin-Ford effect was born, and I could honestly read you word for word what the internet told me about it, but I don't really understand that particular sentence. Um, Okay. So we're just going to say that it had something to do with the motion of the galaxies of our universe, so specifically concerning how quickly they moved and in what formation they moved in. What they landed on was extremely controversial to the rest of the scientific community because it was going against previous theories, just like her her master's thesis and her PhD thesis. They were all basically Mm -hmm. like, well, let's look at it this way. Later, they were vindicated, but it took a minute. And then afterwards, they moved on to quasars... That sounds like something from Star Trek. It might as well be. I Let me read you the, the quotes, what I got, okay? Okay, all right. Quote, a quasar is an extremely luminous active galactic nucleus in which a supermassive black... Nope. <laughs> Wait, there's more. Can I, can I beep in? Beep. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> you lost me. <laughs> We're not even through the first sentence. Oh, my God. It's... That's my bell. Ding, ding, ding. It's super bright. It's super active. Okay. okay. And there's a middle part called a nucleus. That middle part is basically a super massive black hole. Whoa. Wait, I'm thinking like a nucleus. Like, oh, it's going to be really itty bitty. No. Nope. Nope. Teeny tiny. No. Nope. The mass of it, the quasar, is ranging from millions to billions of times the mass of the Earth's sun. And it's surrounded by like gas. It's a monster. Can you use that in a sentence, please? <laughs> this quasar will fuck you up. See, now that's like a club drug. <laughs> a very multifaceted term. Oh, my God. I'm sure there is a drug called a quasar. Are you kidding me? There's a uh, a line of weed called the Pineapple Express after the Pineapple Express movie was like came out. Some scientist was like, I'm going to make this strand and then did. Is it pineapple Oh, I don't know. Damn it, woman. I I don't know, but it exists. All right. Yeah, so quasars 
were like hot stuff. Everyone wanted a piece of that research because they were first originally discovered in 1963. Keep in mind, this is around 1965. So this is brand new stuff and they wanted in on it. But everyone wanted in on it. And honestly, I think she was just tired. She was tired of being competitive and just trying, like tired of like saying stuff that often like got people to go, "Mm, I don't know about that. So she wanted to avoid controversy and take a break, relax a little. Okay. All right. She decided instead to research the rotation and outer reaches of galaxies. Because remember, I told you they moved, they rotated. You know, when you were saying take a break, I was thinking like, okay, maybe go to Crete for like a month. Nope. You know, go somewhere nice in the Mediterranean. Nope. All right. Well, you know, we all have different ideas of taking a break. No. So she decided to look at how galaxies moved, how quickly they moved, yada, yada, yada. But as you know, we wouldn't be here if something wasn't a little off. Oh, we're about to get weird, aren't we? We're about to get a little weird. Okay. All right. I'm going to need my bell. All right. I've got it. I'm ready. (laughs) Lady, do you remember when we were children playing on a playground? Like, not when we were children, because we were 14 when we met, but like when we were like seven. And there was this thing called the roundabout. It was like this large metal, like, platform um, with some random things to hold onto, and it rotated on its center. Yes. Yeah, that's the type of stuff they've taken out of parks. Really? Some kid just scraped a knee and some mom lost her shit. It's fine. But someone would grab a, like grab it and start running, and whether they were a coward or not, they would either let go or jump onto the moving platform with you, right? Mm-hmm. On the moving platform, you knew that if you were on the outskirts of the circle and you let go, you were probably going to be flung off the playground equipment. You had a better chance of sitting near the middle. So this was because, yes, you were going at the same speed as the people at the edge, but you were not in danger of being thrown off as much as they were. The force of the spinning kept you in place, more or less, right? Okay. So, as we hit on before, everything in the universe is moving, every galaxy is spinning, but they're spinning at crazy speeds. We don't feel it because we're spinning along with them, but it's pretty fast. So, if we looked at a galaxy point blank and saw only the stars and cosmic masses in that said galaxy, and we assumed that the only thing holding this galaxy together was the gravitational forces between each mass, like between each planet or star or whatever. Almost as if you, like play connect the dots with them there's gravity between these two masses between all of these masses right um and they can help form whatever shape they're in um so some some galaxies are like big s's and some galaxies are big spirals and depending on how many masses are in like and how much density each mass is there's a gravitational pull from each of those and usually those gravitational pulls keep things together kind of like how our moon is attached to us because of the Earth's gravitational pull, because of its mass and its density. And that's why our moon isn't, like, floating off to Venus or something. Okay. All right. It's holding it's holding the moon in place. Um, so if we only looked at that, those particular masses, it should make sense that the planets or stars or whatever in the middle of the galaxy would move faster than the cosmic masses on the outer edges of the same galaxy. Because just like the roundabout, if the masses on the outer edge of the galaxy were moving as quickly as the ones closer to the center, then the gravitational forces between those masses, like the moon and us, wouldn't be enough to keep the galaxy intact. The force of that, like, spinning would fling Mm -hmm. whatever out of their places, the ones on the outer edge. 
the galaxy would not stay together. Yes? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So applying that logic, you would need pretty much more heavy-duty glue or gravitational pull at the fringes. Yes, ma'am. Of a, of a galaxy. Yes. Okay. So when Rubin looked, every single body in a galaxy she was observing, regardless of its position in the galaxy, moved at the same speed. Okay. So a fixed variable is what they found instead. Yeah. How the heck is this possible? Galaxies are literally defined the laws of physics. I mean, it's a galaxy. I feel like it can kind of do whatever it it's wants. It's still science. It still works off of physics. It still works off of... It should still, at least. She had an answer, though. Okay. All right. Yeah. What was her answer? Dark matter. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So here's something mind-blowing for you, Megan. Matter that makes up you and me and the computers we have and our dogs, the galaxies, the suns, the planets, they're all made up of something called normal matter. So that's matter that we know exists and we can see and we can interact with it. And that makes up like 5% of the entire universe. Okay, one, I don't know how much normal matter it is that makes up you and I. We're a little fucking weird. But two, um, 5%? 5%. In like this galaxy? The universe. Okay, there's a lot of universe. Mm-hmm. How the hell is anyone going to be able to run the numbers? There's a lot we haven't seen. You want me to get into it? I don't. I don't. Okay. Save that for our future <laughs> Patreon special <laughs> bonus episode. <laughs> of the universe is made up of matter that we can interact with. The rest of it is dark matter and dark energy. So I know it. I'm seeing your face. I see your face. I know. I know. I I just. We're not touching dark energy with a 10 foot pole. Okay. I mean, thank you. Yes. I feel like it's it's so big. You're going to need a much bigger pole to. (laughs) We're going to have to get into dark matter. And this is where things get spooky. So the first thing I'm going to say is that. Dark matter is not the same as a black hole because black holes interact with their environment violently. Okay. okay. It's mean. They don't like people. Okay. Dark matter is just there. It's just doing its job to keep the universe in order. Okay. It's fairly misunderstood. It is matter that we know exists. We know it interacts with gravity. We know that it is extremely dense. We know there's a lot of it. Places with a high concentration of it actually bend light passing nearby. But that's literally the only visual cue we've got that it exists. Okay. We can't touch it or measure it in literally any other way, and we know literally nothing else. Okay. Mm -hmm. The idea of dark matter has been around since the late 1800s. It's been theorized by countless of scientists over time, but it was Rubin's work that helped further the evidence that dark matter actually exists. It was her theory that the reason the galaxies don't fly apart was because each individual galaxy also holds five to ten times as much dark matter as it does ordinary or normal matter. Because dark matter is actually extremely dense. It's got enough gravitational pull to keep things in place. Oh my goodness. Okay. Is that what fuels the ship in Futurama? I don't... I can... What? Let me Google. Oh my God. Let me Google. I don't know. What fuels the ship? For Planet Express. One of the characters has a little pet, but the little pet is like a super intelligent oh, alien. And it's actually their poo. It is dark matter. Ah. Mm-hmm. Okay. See, I can relate to your like high science. <laughs> yeah. Dark matter. 
<laughs> totally what fuels the Planet Express. Duh. Oh my god, yes. That is what fuels the Planet Express on Futurama. Dark matter. Ugh, you should have just, you should have opened with that. Uh, I'd be like, Psh, I totally know what you're talking about. I didn't about. make that connection. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was a Well, th- don't worry. I didn't make that connection the first time we recorded the show. <laughs> oh Spoiler alert. Someone's computer crashed and the file was wiped. Ah, we had to re-record anyway because somebody, some other person's audio was super low. And I have resolved my audio issues. <laughs> I love you. I love you too. Um, okay. Yeah, so the gravitational force needed to hold the galaxies intact instead of having a sun fly off the roundabout and hitting its head on the monkey bars is dark matter. All right, sure. Why not? Why not? Why the fuck not? So, <laughs> yeah, she won a bunch of awards. One of the things that she was recognized for, she was re- she received the gold medal of the Royal Ast- Astronomical Society in like 1996. And this was kind of part of her lecture. And she eventually made an adaptation of it and presented it in a review called 100 Years of Rotating Galaxies. That was in 2000. So she was like, the existence of dark matter is real. It keeps the universe together and... Here you go. So, like, her work was, I mean, it's in textbooks today. In any astronomical textbook or astronomy textbook, like, mm-hmm. it's her Her work is the building blocks for the continuation of their science. So that's pretty cool. I like to think that when she came out with, um, when she came out with that research, that by then everyone had kind of caught on that, like, hey, we might not quite get what she's talking about now, but give it 20 years from now, looks like she's on to something. Eventually, yeah. Yeah, like, she's... She's proven that multiple times. Honestly, she never stopped working. She worked her heart out until her death in December of 2016. And she died with complications of dementia. So that's got to be real weird. Oh. Yeah. Oh, man, that's tough. Like a cool mind where you're like, okay, well, is what she's saying like real or is it something like, is she is she snapping a little bit? Like we like I'm sure there are people like who knew her and were working with her and were like, okay, which one is it? <laughs> which sucks. Um, that's a terrible way for anyone to go. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's how my grandma went, and that was not... Okay, yeah, but your grandma was almost, like, 100 years old. Yeah, no, she had a really long life. She was in her mid-90s. 96. 96? Yeah. I'm gonna live forever, Megan. It's gonna suck. What? No, how else are we supposed to do space travel if we don't live forever? I told you, I'm not getting on that spaceship. I'm booking the tickets. I am... Booking the tickets. We're doing an all-inclusive stay on Mars. It's going to be great. We're going to do all the art museums. I am not. The science is going to be what gets us there. I am not getting on that spaceship. Oh, my God. You're going to be so sedated. Be like, all right, I need three shots of tequila <laughs> and a Valium now. It's not happening. You cannot drag my ass on that ship. It's not happening. We're doing it. We're doing it. Oh. All right. I look forward to seeing you in, um, let's see say what um 50 years from now oh man 50 years yeah we'll start saving up now uh anyway she won a bunch of awards which i'm gonna put on the show notes and okay so she was elected to the national academy of science but she was the second woman to be elected to it after her colleague margaret burbage they would not only be on the panel of the academy of science but they would also push for like the advancement of women in their fields. So they would go on the panel and be like, well, what about this scientist? Like, why isn't she being recognized? 
And they would nice. use, yeah, they would use their higher, like, their status to be like, well, have you seen her work? Like, what's going on with her? Um, so she was constantly, she and her, her colleague were constantly working for that. And then I think it's really cool that all four of her children were scientists, including her only daughter, Judith, who was also an astronomer. Oh, yeah, I meant to ask you a little earlier. So while she was going through all, you know, getting all these research positions and expanding on her work, um, I imagine raising a family, too. Like, that's just, and four kids. Of four, I mean, yeah. she, they must have had their hands full. Yeah. I mean, I have, like, a dog, and I'm already like, no, 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 don't have time for anything. All right, so things with your scientist, Vera Rubin, was getting pretty otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Like infinite galaxies, otherworldly. Today on my end, we're sticking a little closer to home on Earth, but we're kind of getting in some spiritual, otherworldly stuff. What do you mean? Yeah, we're getting a little occulty today. We're getting a little weird. We're, okay, shit's gonna get a little weird today, which I thought would be pretty fun because Halloween is like right around the corner, and I know you and I are super duper excited. We're almost thirty. <laughs> We finally got our costumes ready, like, ahead of time for once. Oh, it's We're on so the same exciting. page. Everything's moving. I can't wait to have fun with you and have an awesome party. And maybe we'll even post some pictures of our costumes oh, we that we totally worked out months ahead of time for once in our 14 years of union together. <laughs> um, so, yeah, getting a little weird. Thought it'd be fun for Halloween. Last episode, we got murdery with our dollhouses of death. Today, we're getting Aleister Crowley, Freak Explosion, Scientology, Witch Woman Weird, with the artist Marjorie Cameron. That's... I know it's a lot. That's, um, that's a mouthful. Okay, yo, don't, like, roll your eyes at me when you just tried explaining what a fucking quasar was. Quasar. Thank you. And also, this is... I told you, this is the kind of woman that I would avoid on the street. What, your scientist or my artist? Your artist. You know what? Maybe... Maybe, but I think you're going to like her work. Okay. And I think you're going to like the sentiment of her. She, she's not taking anyone's BS. Okay. Kind of did things on her All own. All right. Yeah. So set the stage. We're going to 1950s America. Um, think Leave it to Beaver, nuclear family in the suburbs. Dad goes off to work. Mom stays at home. She cleans the house in high heels and pearls. And then the whole family sits down to a home-cooked meal every single night. How many women do you think actually cleaned the house in high heels and pearls? Like, actually? Uh, I don't own either of those things. I own both of those things, but I've never cleaned a house in it. You know, I hear people pay good money for that. I once had someone try to pay me money so he could come over to my house, give me a foot massage, and clean my house. You know, for the fact that I know your mother listens to this, I'm not going to ask any more questions, but... um, Um, No, I mean, like, he literally was like, can I do this? And I was like, I don't know you. (laughs) You do not get to come into my home. You're you're a stranger. Stranger danger. That's, like, such a good, I feel like, description of you, that that's, like, kind of a vibe you give off that people are just like, I have to come to her house, and I have to rub her feet if she'll even let me touch her feet, and I have to clean her house. Oh, because I'm a dirty, filthy boy. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me- Meanwhile, on my end, it's like, Megan, which Megan? Glasses? I don't know. I thought, <laughs> gla- no. <laughs> the eyebrows, Yes. <laughs> Yes. Okay, what about her? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, for the sake of my mother, here's a disclaimer. 
I didn't let the stranger come into my home and rub my feet. I was very confused and told him no thank you. Very politely said, I don't kink shame, but I am not the woman for you. (laughs) Also, uh, I've seen horror movies. I know what happens. I know exactly what happens. (laughs) I'm a woman. I will end up dead. I'm a woman of color. Do you know what my statistics are? Because they're not great. They're awful. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, keep going. A a slight, (laughs) slight better rate on you. Um, Yeah. So the whole uh, Leave it to Beaver vibe, that is not life for our artist Marjorie Cameron. She wears black. She does peyote, which is a hallucinogenic. Uh, She drives around LA in a hearse. And this is all while she's making art and is also part of an occult group called the Ordo Templi Ordintis, which is, I mean, that's definitely not part of that whole golly gee wholesome 1950s no, vibe like at not all even close. yeah no not the at all. only thing i'm digging is the hearse because i really want one because of how much like room is in the back i could fit a bed in there and just sleep you know that's so funny i was thinking how many kilns and how many pounds of clay you could put in the back of that supper priorities <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right well each their own nap time and art time for the other people <laughs> Yeah, so Marjorie Cameron, she was born in 1923 in Iowa. And let's see, your your scientist, she was born in 1920, did you say six? Yeah, somewhere on there. Okay. Yeah, so they're, you know, they're, they grew up about the same time. She was the oldest of four children in a middle-class family. Small town that they lived in, both sides of Cameron's family worked in the railroad industry. And it's pretty safe to say that she was the black sheep of the family. But she was also really smart and really outgoing and really creative from a young age. And that set her apart. Now, Cameron said of her her time in in that small town in Iowa, I became associated with women who were all considered antisocial for some reason or another. They were not following the chosen paths. And that sentiment, that really perfectly describes Cameron. Cameron, she was not interested in the expected, like, submissive domestic role for women so the pearls and the high heels and the cleaning the house and making meals and come 1941 cameron graduated from high school she's 18 she had earned some scholarships for school but she was like nah like how the hell can i get out of the small town instead which luckily for her um america had entered world war ii and the military was looking for all hands on deck um you're telling me she joined the military she did that's not really a witchy woman like environment okay just wait because like i'm sure a lot of people would share within their own lives things don't get weird until she moves to la oh (laughs) that's fair yeah now you're right things are pretty straight laced but cameron's she's looking for her way out of the city and there is a program within the navy called the women accepted for volunteer emergency services also known as waves Oh, um, Grace Hopper. Admiral Grace Hopper was part of Waves. I wondered. Okay, yeah, she was episode 12. I couldn't recall who had also been involved in that program, too, that you'd covered in the past. Two very different people. (laughs) You're right. Yeah, especially once you consider how straight-laced of a woman your admiral Mm -hmm. was. Um, Cameron is not that at all. But at the time, and for her age, it was a way of getting out of town, which didn't involve marrying someone. That's fair. Yeah. And, like, 
she was middle class, but financially there wasn't like too much social mobility or financial mobility. So enlisting, you know, that's what kind of moved her out and about. So that's also how Cameron came to work for the Joint Chief of Staffs, which is a very important job. Yeah, holy shit. Yeah, like Cameron couldn't talk about it. Mm, yeah. For the level of security, which she didn't quite like. And she did request a transfer, which put her in D.C. And this is where she kind of really fell in more. So she's in D.C. And for the war effort, a lot of people had come out from Hollywood and were in D.C. in in an area that was essentially called the Hollywood Navy. Mm -hmm. And so Cameron worked among them. Uh, at this photographic science lab on the Potomac. And in the three years that she was there, she was working in cartography. So she was doing map making. And as a kid, like I said, she was always creative. She was always drawing. So that was a great productive outlet for her skill set. And also, like, she didn't necessarily have formal art education beyond what she had, like, growing up. Um, So I imagine this was a really good way, uh, from a technical standpoint, to strengthen her skill sets. Strong lines. Yeah, and her work later on, it's all about the line yeah. work. Yeah, oh my god, yeah. Yeah. Now, 1945 comes around, Cameron's 22, the war comes to an end, she is honorably discharged from the military. Oh, honorably, good for her. And it, it's also this time she starts officially going, after the fact, you know, by Cameron, her last name, as opposed to Marjorie. Like Cher. Cameron's like, all right, cool, I'm 22, what do I do? So she takes some art classes and decides to move out to L.A. to be with family. Yay! Now, this is where things get a little weird, which, again, I feel like anyone who's moved out to L.A. is like, yeah, no shit. Now, while Cameron was in D.C., her family moved from Iowa to L.A. And for Cameron, she said, quote, to move out to California was my dream. It's just that our actions in a small town were more open to censorship than they were in L.A., where nobody gives a damn what you do. That's how it should be. Nobody should care. Yeah, which I think is why when you and I moved from our county in Maryland up to Philly, it was just like, oh, my goodness. Yes, this is amazing. There's like over a million people here. It doesn't matter what we do because we're just small and insignificant. Nobody knows our names. Nobody sees us anywhere. We can just we can do what we want and not have to deal with any like bullshit. Well, there was catcalling. There's always catcalling. Cat always, yeah. Yeah. Being followed to class. No bueno. Or home. Or home. From the laundry yep. mat. Yeah. <sighs> um, yay, sexism. <laughs> so, yeah. Cameron, so she joins her family who, you know, have moved for better jobs out to L.A. And she settles in pretty quick. One day in 1946, Cameron's 23, she is introduced to a mad scientist, this guy called Jack Parsons. He's nine years older. He's 31. He's also living in this massive house in a very well-to-do, wealthy area of the city. Is he creating a frankenstein monster situation with explosions but not body parts oh well eventually his own body parts oh what (laughs) it's a halloween episode (laughs) (laughs) oh no how is he a mad scientist talk to me what's going on okay well he's he's a rocket scientist oh that's not a mad scientist well, just wait. Okay. That's just your everyday scientist. My dad knows three of them. Actually, I don't know how many. Oh, sh- okay. Well, let's leave the nuclear <laughs> physicist out of this. <laughs> I feel like he's an outlier in the average of what does your dad do? Probably. <laughs> yeah. We we both do for both for very different reasons. <laughs> 
Yeah, so he's a rocket scientist. He is a founding scientist of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Nice. I mean, this is a guy who helped create and cement, like, modern rocket technology. Mm -hmm. And this is the stuff that, like, got us to the moon. So Jack meets Cameron, completely falls for her. And that same year, they get married. All right, this is where the mad scientist thing kind of creeps in. So turns out when Jack first saw Cameron, he was like, oh, my God, she's my scarlet woman. And that's the goddess that Jack... And his good old friend, L. Ron Hubbard, as in, like, creator of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, had been trying to summon in the days leading up to Cameron and Jack meeting. Wait, okay. How did they try to summon the goddess that they think exists? What? Walk me through that. That ritual, please. You know what? There's not much known about that particular ritual, and I did not inquire within. (laughs) But... Jack Parsons, this rocket scientist, was really into the occult. Like, Falster of the British occultist Aleister Crowley. Mm. Yeah, like, he and his sect were, like, the point of contact in the United States as an offshoot of the British occultist. No! So, Aleister Crowley, he was part of this religious movement he, he helped create called the Ordo Templi or Orientis. Gonna mispronounce it. I'm also gonna call it the OTO when I need Sounds to. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, so with this, we are 100% back in some Western esotericism, which we touch on a little bit when we did uh, Hilma Ofklint, a painter, Swedish painter. Basically, it's just, it's weird. It's weird religious it's stuff. Scientology. Uh, yeah, yeah. People have argued that L. Ron Hubbard did pull a lot of the occult stuff from Aleister Crowley because, like I said, he was involved in this and I'm not going to explain that, but it's just, it's kind of weird stuff. Um, kind of consider it like an offshoot of like Christianity. And within this example, it's like kind of sort of a weird third cousin of the Freemasons. I know your dad would cringe so hard if he heard that. Maybe next time we hang out, I'll have to bring it up. Oh my God. <laughs> oh. Did I tell you that? He's studying for his final Master Mason exam. Okay, does it ever really end, though? No, it doesn't. There's always something new to aspire to when you are a Freemason. Oh, God. I don't know. Does he have to kill us now that we have just let it slip on our podcast? I think we have to die now. That's it. It's been a nice run, guys. Happy Halloween. I don't know how to handle this. My dad is a Freemason. Whatever. Mine's a convicted convict. Like, and? That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. Oh, okay. Um, so the man that Cameron has married, Jack, he was like head of the local chapter of the OTO, which is kind of honestly the only national chapter of the OTO. Hmm. And Cameron became immersed into it just like her husband as well. And it, it took a little bit. She had always been very open to these things, these like otherworldly things, these things, you know, kind of beyond the typical explanations of the world and what goes on around us from a scientific point of view and then also from a religious one. Mm-hmm. Cameron explored a lot of really different otherworldly stuff mm-hmm. like your scientists, but just in a very different way. Uh-oh. Drugs. Uh, yeah. Drugs! Okay, also, it's like L.A. Um, So even without this, like, occult overlay for Cameron, she was a very captivating person. And being located in California post-World War II, that did put her in a pool of artists that they were resisting and kind of combating, like that post- 
or conformity, that whole leave it to beaver attitude. I'm with Cameron, everything about her was subversive from her friends to the way she dressed and then in her art. Cameron was making drawings and paintings and also some poetry too and they really pushed against like the heavy social conservatism of the time. During the 1950s and 60s in America, we've got the Red Scare going on where people are being accused left and right of being communist and put on trial, especially in LA. Now, Cameron was making art at a time where there are very few women, especially in the LA scene, that they could seriously pursue being a, a professional artist. I mean, that goes into it. There was just, there's a lot of barriers and a lot of sexist ones that just inhibited people from being able to do that. But I mean, for Cameron, she had a really captivating personality. I think it was a way of immersing herself in that macho creative scene in LA. And also her proximity to the occult. I mean, I'm sure that created like a dangerous allure for people. Gross. Yeah. So, I mean, especially when she's in her late 20s, early 30s, there's a whole bunch of different kind of swirling factors mm-hmm. into it. Now, art-wise, Cameron made these very fluid, stylized figures that weren't always human. And the interest in the otherworldly is very evident in her art. And also her skill set as a as a map maker is really relevant in the work that she's done. I mean, for Cameron, her use of line in her figures, it's very smooth and dynamic, very strong, but also really weird. So at Cameron's work, she's done painting. She does mostly drawings. So in her work, some do have color. But it's really the line work that's important. And content-wise, she's got these weird elongated humanoid creatures. They're kind of creepy. For me, her white ink drawings on black paper are terrifying. They kind of look like abstract skeletal forms, almost like an x-ray of a demon. What? Yeah, they're they're fun. They're weird. But I feel like if I had some of those like hanging up in my house and like was going to the bathroom late at night and like saw one in the corner of my eye, I'd be like, Ooh, oh no, it's fine. It's fine. It's just ink on paper. Hmm. I just saw a picture of her. Very commanding personality. Very strong. She did some performance work in her like late 20s, early 30s. And because of that, uh, we have a record of some of her artwork because like later on it gets destroyed. But one of the directors was saying how he had this film planned out and he knew who was going to be in it. And then Cameron walked into the room. And he was so funny. He was like, the aura of her energy just forced out the other woman. And and he was like, after that, I was like, she's the new star of my movie. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. I mean, so it was a very colorful way of putting it. But yeah, you don't want to mess with her. I mean, very strong personality, very forward. And this is at a time where, you know, women are expected to like be at home and bake a pie and vacuum the living room Mm, nope yeah she was not having any of that now out of her artwork one of the pieces cameron is most well known for is a drawing she did in 1955 she's 32 and it was inspired by her first peyote trip which is a hallucinogenic and the drawing it's a nude woman on her on her hands and knees and there's a masculine figure thrusting into her from and behind. googling now see i think you're gonna like it i feel like her overall vibe and like you said like if you saw it on the street you might be like mm, no oh yeah i think you can get behind her um art. there are many things going on here yeah, so the woman's on her hands and knees. She's got, like, a serpent's tongue kind of snaking out yeah, of her mouth. Yeah, why does she have a serpent tongue snaking out of her mouth? I mean, why not? I understand the lines in her breasts. Those are, like, veins and vessels. I understand what's going on with him, with the, the neurons in his brain and the muscles that she's outlining. But the serpent tongue, 
I don't understand. We're getting a little weird. Well, she, one of the fun things about Cameron's work is that it's based on proper anatomy, but she plays with it and she pulls and pushes it. So there are things that are exaggerated, like the tongue that's, you know, kind of coming out of this woman's mouth. But um, I think they're really fun. They're weird, but they're fun. And again, the line work, I think is amazing. Now that drawing, it was featured in a friend's gallery show, uh, a Wallace Berman. And he was one of the many leading post-war West Coast artists at the time that Cameron worked with. And and she did mentor a few of them. And at the show of his, where Cameron's drawing was shown, I remember, it's not her show. Like, her work was included with his work on his request. Her drawing of that woman, bent over, got the gallery shut down by the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. (laughs) That's funny. I mean, it's not that. You're not really seeing anything go in anywhere. No, like the only explicit thing is you see the breasts hanging down and you look and you're like, well, obviously they're having sex. Well, okay. Uh, there's, he he might also be fingering her a little bit, but you're not seeing it. I mean, help a lady out. It's suggestive at best. And by suggestive, I mean, you know exactly what's happening. But it's, it's fine. It's like a PG-13 movie. Yeah. I mean, especially with the amount of nudity in American television and movies these days. So that's nothing. Well... Okay, let me say female nudity. Because God forbid you look at a penis. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so it got the it got the gallery shut down. And the drawing itself, it's like the size of like a, a poker playing card. It's, That's ridiculous. Well, 1950s, everyone's super conservative. Mm. And that was enough to be obscene mm. and to violate the mm. law. Yeah. Yep. Um. So after that, Cameron, she's like, I'm never working with a gallery ever. And I mean, for the most part, afterwards, she didn't. I think that's an aspect of why it's taken years for her art to be appreciated because she didn't have it professionally represented in her lifetime. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And like I mentioned earlier, there's also the fact that a good bit of our artwork was destroyed. Okay. Now we're going to have to talk about that. Yeah. Because I'm very confused. All right. Well, story time. So six years into Cameron's marriage... Her rocket scientist, occultist husband, (laughs) dies in an explosion in his home lab. Okay. Many questions. Like, on the eve of them leaving together to go to Mexico. Like, the next goddamn day, they were going to leave the country. Why did he have a home lab? Okay. All right. That's such a loaded question. Uh, Why didn't he follow lab rules? A bit of a scientist bad boy. Just so many questions. <laughs> Did she kill him? Okay. Well, <laughs> no. So people weren't sure if it was an actual accident. People weren't sure if it was suicide. Probably not. People weren't sure if it was murder. Cameron afterwards, she was like, I think he was murdered. I think someone purposely wanted that accident to happen. So this is here's some here's some dirt. So Cameron was actually his second wife. Right? So Cameron's husband, he was cheating on his first wife with his wife's sister. Mm. Yeah. Well, that didn't go over so well. And then he met Cameron and then he got remarried. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, his mistress, the sister of his Mm ex-wife, she hooked up with his friend, L. Ron Hubbard. Creator of Scientology. I can't even say it with a straight face. It's so ridiculous. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. There is. There is. And there's even like a whole um, uh, television series that's come out more focused on him. Of course. It's 
It's weird. And apparently Elrond Hubbard and him, like they had a falling out, but then also his ex-mistress and Elrond Hubbard were able to get money out of him. So like that was a financial strain. Also, we've got the Red Scare going on and with his occultist ties, because that that was like not normal for the time, like Mm -hmm. at all. That puts them under FBI investigation. And also there's a threat. Well, he could be a commie. He could be a spy. We can't trust him. Yeah. So there was pushback from the fellow founders of the Jet Propulsion Lab that he helped found. They wanted him out. They're like, you know, look, you're just, it's, it's too much shit. So they tried to like kind of push him out a bit. Do you think they killed him? I don't know. I don't know. And during their marriage, Cameron, she would go down to Mexico and like make art down there. So going to Mexico like wasn't such a weird thing. Um, And we talked about before, a lot of people, a lot of creative people during this time were going to Mexico to get out of the super conservative and super racist United States. Um, So yeah, that's the long answer for what had kind of happened surrounding that, the lead up to it. A little weird. Um, But after that, Cameron was really distraught. You know, she grieved for quite a while. And they're in an instance where word on the street is that she was on a lot of drugs, bit of a bender, hadn't slept in a few days, and decided to burn all her art up to that point. And so she did. Rule number one, never get rid of your art. Ever. Okay, well, if you want to make some money, yes. Rule number one, always Document your art. Backups, people. Post-explosion time, Cameron has burned her art, but records of it do survive thanks to an indie filmmaker. Because, I mean, you're in L.A., of course you're going to know a few of those. So she knew two directors, a Curtis Harrington and a Kenneth Anger. Now, the first, Harrington, he made a 10-minute short film featuring Cameron and her art. And so because of that, we can look at work from that period and actually see it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then the second guy, Anger, he did a 38-minute film that featured Cameron among the cast. That one is more of like an embodiment of her art. He was taking cues from that as one of his influences. But essentially, it's like a fantasy costumed orgy. Okay. So two questions. I have so many questions. (laughs) Okay. Why is his name Anger? And I don't know. Maybe he changed it when he got out to LA. (laughs) Why? I just, just orgy film? Yes. Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. It's a whole lot of WTFs and it's up on YouTube. (sighs) Yeah, both of the films that she was in, they're both up on YouTube. You can watch them in their entirety. It's weird. And I, that's like the word of. It's based off of her. Like it's. Well, it embodies a lot of the themes and a lot of the attitudes that Cameron was a part of. So, like, being a free spirit, being, like, physically open and sexually open and, like, you know, conceptually, intellectually open to new ideas and thinking beyond traditional, like, Protestant values and that middle class nuclear Just family. a lot of drugs. Yeah, that too. Um I mean, you know, it was all about, like, expanding your consciousness and perceptions of reality and played on their occult ideology. So, yeah, there might have been some drugs, but a lot of of WTFs. Um, It's fun. The music's weird. The lighting's weird. But, you know, you can tell everyone had a good time filming it. But then pulling back from that kind of psychedelic film, um, Cameron even acted alongside Dennis Hopper in 1961. (laughs) 
Yeah, totally different kind of vibe. Uh, but she played a mysterious sea witch in a 1961 film called Night Tide. What is happening here? Oh, did you Google? Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. There's like a Freddy Krueger-esque, I don't know what's happening here, but he's looking in a mirror. Oh, and I think that's her. She, Cameron played the Scarlet Woman in that film, which is what her husband had yeah, called her. Yeah, yep. That's, he thought that's the goddess, so she, in it she's has, you know, bright red hair and really Oh, I see her. Bright I makeup. I see her. Yeah. Over oh, the top. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, this is not an, an introvert that we're dealing no. with here. <laughs> no. Uh, no. Just wait till you get to the sarcophagus. Why? Yeah. Okay, now they're, like, touching each other. If they start fucking, I'm out. All right, well, again, it's on YouTube, so everyone can go watch. <laughs> Keep going. Where it is not explicit, because that would surely violate their terms and conditions. <laughs> so, yeah, Cameron is pretty much, like, the complete opposite to, like, what's going on right now, style-wise. And that's Jackie Kennedy. And then after the early 1960s, the record kind of goes quiet on Cameron. She had remarried... That husband also passed away early. Not sure mm. what of. I, th- I think it might have been like a drug overdose or something related. When Cameron was 32, she had a child in 1955. So, I mean, things going quiet could just be her, you know, like raising a family as a single parent. But, I mean, while Cameron was never interested in commercially showing her art, she was always making. Um, Living in a small house in West Hollywood, was publishing poems of her own. Uh, She co-edited a collection of her first husband's writing for that occultist group, the OTO. And in the late 80s, there was interest in her work from the art world proper. So the Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery shows her work. And then later on, she's included in some very important shows by the Whitney Museum of American Art and then the Museum of Modern Art Pacific Design Center. And, like, arguably, even if Cameron was interested in professionally showing her art, I think it still would have been really difficult for her to do so. I mean, one, because she's a woman at that time, which is pretty shitty, but, I mean, that's life. But then, two, I mean, her work was also really sexually open and explicit, and that attitude got a gallery shut down for a little card size drawing. Now, up to her death from cancer in 1995, uh, she was 73. Cameron, she was making art. But I mean, for the most part of her life, she was little known outside of, you know, her circle in LA. Now, what is cool is that a good friend of hers, Scott Hobbs, he runs the nonprofit Preserving Her Art. That's pretty solid. Which is pretty sweet. Yeah. And he wrote of her, quote, the Cameron I knew from the mid 80s till her death in 95 was a beauty but not in the sense of our youth-driven culture. Cameron's life was her art, the way that she created magic, not only in her incredible paintings and poetry, but in the expressive way she lived. So it's like 50 years after the fact that she was leading the charge, but I mean, she's just finally starting to get recognition for the art that she did and like how she led her life, which I think is pretty cool. And, you know, very much ahead of her time in the way that your scientists had to wait a few decades for everyone else to catch mm-hmm. up to her. Yeah. Which is shitty, but... I mean, we got there eventually, the end, and that's what matters. Ah, uh, that's scary. That is Marjorie Cameron. Very cool. And you know, like, no matter. I think what I really like about her is like some people like just throw some individuals with that kind of fuck you personality also tend to have a like a personality that put people off. But it's nice to have people with that personality who still has people like talk 
really well about them no matter where they are in their life or what they're doing like they're like yeah like she's beautiful both inside and out and she's talented and she's super intelligent and we're glad that she's here and we're gonna take care of her work and showcase it yeah and for a friend to step up and do that because typically it is family members who will do that so I just think that's pretty awesome uh, Scott Hobbs he's the one you know he's cataloged her work he's the one that you know you'll go through if people are interested in showcasing it in exhibitions so he's taken on a lot of the work himself just for and representing her after the fact which I you know for me that shows really like love that he has for her very cool yeah so we go out to the galaxies and out to the expanse of your mind but um drugs yeah yeah happy halloween (laughs) (laughs) have some drugs eat some candy it's the american thing to do Uh, well as always if you guys have made it this far you guys are really awesome you really are thank you right now denver colorado is leading the charge for highest viewers thanks whoever you are all right milana if people want to learn more about the dark matter you were talking about or to see the drawing that got that gallery shut down uh, where can they go to see more? You can check out our show notes at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can email us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We have a Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminist. You can tweet at us at Milena Megan. So that's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. And you can listen to us on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iTunes, Rate, subscribe on any and all of your podcast platforms. If you are listening on iTunes, please go ahead and put on the comment below or even tweet at us. Let me know if you could be any supernatural creature, like classic Halloween creature, what would you be and why? Megan? Okay. I'm a night owl. Uh, so a vampire. And I could stay up late every evening and make art. <sighs> Don't heavy sigh. Okay, also a witch. I think a witch. Witches are pretty cool. If I could be like a witch from the Terry Pratchett mm-hmm. universe from Discworld, I'm on board with okay, that. That's fair. I just downloaded the witchy expansion to The Sims 4. There you go. All right, guys. Until next time. Happy, happy Halloween. Halloween. Why did I go straight to Star Wars? That's on you. Give me a sec. I'm going to save my audio.